Uh, go ahead and open up your Bibles to Mark 14. Uh, we are beginning to approach the end. I don't know if I can say that, but I will. We're beginning to approach the end of uh, the series uh, um, here. We've been in Mark for quite some time. Um, and so we have uh, really, I think, through the end of, of February or, or partway into March, um, and we'll be, we'll be done. Um, and so we're going to... We're going to zoom in here a little bit on really exactly what you just saw depicted on the screen, um, the betrayal and, and arrest of Christ, something that we're all probably quite familiar with. Um, so Mark 14, uh, we'll start at verse 43, uh, but I'll get there in just a second. So you, you saw the scene um, in the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, the, disciple, uh, the disciples are present there as well as Judas shows up on the scene with, his, um, with the soldiers, with the chief priests um, that are coming to, uh, Judas is there to come to turn Jesus over, to identify to the religious leaders who Jesus is um, for the betrayal okay, and for the arrest. Um, and just to give you a little bit of background, the disciples have just uh, finished a nice nap. All right, uh, Maybe that describes some of you. Um, doesn't describe me, but uh, that's all right. Um, the disciples have finished a great nap. Uh, all the while, um, they are, uh, Jesus was agonizing over what was about to take place, okay? It's Thursday night. Uh, tomorrow, in the, in the context of where we're at, tomorrow, Jesus is going to be crucified, okay? And so, uh, they're, they're praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, and uh, Jesus is, well, I guess I should say, Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. The disciples are like nodding off, falling asleep. And Jesus is literally agonizing over what will take place tomorrow. Like, I don't know if you've ever been there before. Have you ever been to this place where you're just like, you can hardly like hold it together about what's about ready to happen? Um, I've, been in, I've been in this situation a number of different times where um, I find myself, it's almost always on a couch. And uh, I'm talking to someone, uh, or someone's talking to me, like they come to me and they're like, I just need to talk to you, this is going on, we just need to talk. So we sit down, I'm like, yeah, we can talk. And for some reason, it's always late, and I'm just exhausted. And they're like pouring their heart out, and I'm like, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been on the other side, and you're like, they're falling asleep, and I'm like pouring my heart out. Well, that's kind of the scene that uh, Jesus was in. Um, Look at, uh, let, let's start at 41. We'll back up a couple verses. Uh, Mark 14, 41. And he came the third time. So it didn't happen once. This is the third time. He came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping? Taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise. Let us be going, let, or, well, rise, let us be going, see my betrayer is at hand. He uses this really um, intriguing phrase uh, where, where he says, uh, the hour has come. So up, up to this point, even from, from very old, from old speaking, there was all this language, there was all this lingo, there were all these people, namely prophets, who were speaking. And typically prophets spoke for God. Um, it's what a prophet did. And so they're, they're speaking, and, and their, their words and their language are pointing to something, to something that's going to happen, to something that's going to take place, okay? Um, 
And so all the while, it hasn't. And there are even instances in the Gospels, and you're probably familiar with this, where Jesus is, is talking with some different people, and uh, they're trying to figure out what's going on, and, uh, and he uses the phrase that the time is not yet. The time has not come yet. Um, and even to the point, like, let me give you a couple examples. Um, in, in John chapter 7, Jesus is in the temple, and he's speaking to uh, some different people in there, and he's, and he's talking really about the fact that he's the Messiah from God. Okay, well, that obviously creates all this uproar about what's going on, and so they want to they fight back on that to the point where they want to arrest him for that. Well, here's what it says in John 7.30. It says, they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Really interesting. It's like they're in this moment where really the very reason why they arrest him in the garden is the very reason they want to arrest him right there. But the only reason why they don't is because God's like, no, it's not time. Okay, another example, John 8, a chapter later, uh, he's in the temple um, again, and he's speaking as if, uh, as being his, as God as his father, okay? Um, and it says this, these words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. Now, what, what I find so incredibly crazy about, about this, about, about what's happening here, is Jesus uses these words in 41 where he says, the hour has come. Okay, so it's like this, it's like this epic moment where everything from of old has been prophesied, been predicted to the point where even the birth of Christ is predicted, and, and that came, okay? And, and now the, the betrayal, the crucifixion, that whole scene of what's all been predicted for, for so long has been, it's not here, it's not here, it's not here. Why is it not here? Because God, in his sovereign plan, in his sovereign hand, is like, There, there, were, there were numerous times, and Jesus is even going to talk about it. There were numerous times where, in man's eyes, it could have been time. But God's like, no, it's not time yet. And so, just, just in looking at that, I began to think about, like, waiting on God. Um, like, for example, uh, we're, we're waiting on, on a baby, um, our second one. And so there's this... Now, it's, it's kind of not quite the same because, you know, April 18th, we kind of know somewhere in there, uh, right? But there, there's still this aspect of, like, the time is not yet. Like, we pray. <laughs> we pray, and it's not until then. But like, there's just different aspects of, like, like waiting on God. And, and maybe that's where you're at tonight, okay? Like, like the, and, and all the while, God's saying, the, the time is not yet. Time is not yet. The time is not yet. Because in, in this story, the only thing really that, that, that kept it from happening before it happened was literally the hand of God saying, it's not time. It's, it's, it's not time. So I just find incredible, incredible rest in the realization of the sovereign hand of God. Because even in some of those moments, some of those moments of, Finally, when God removes his hand, and finally when God says, okay, the time is now. Like, think about what 
typically is on the other side of that. But typically it ranges in one of two things. It ranges in something like the incredible birth of a, of a child, joy, celebration, or it comes to be a, a betrayal and a rest and a crucifixion of something horrific, of something terrible. All the while, God's hand is dictating it all, in control of it all. 43. And immediately, while he was still speaking, okay, so see, he's still talking to his disciples. Here's what's going to happen, and really, even before he's done, like, here they come. Like you saw them coming out of the woods. You saw the, the torches coming out of the woods. Like they started coming. Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Um, so here in the scene you have Judas. Shows up on the scene. And uh, in this moment, I think that not that it wasn't something that he didn't know about, but, but I think that coming to this realization of one of my boys, like one of my guys, is about ready to hand me over. And it's going to be done. But, but not only that, what's, what's really interesting is note how they, how they came. Okay? They came, I think, expecting resistance. They came with, with clubs and swords, like ready for a, a fight. Like it's in the middle, like it's late at night, it's, there's nobody around, like they're in the forest. All the while, like, they, they came ready with a bunch of guys with armor on. I think Judas knew a little bit about what Jesus was capable of, possibly. 44. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to them at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. I think you would have to assume from this passage that the significance of a sign, okay, really... The only reason why you would need a sign would be what? If you didn't know something. Right? Okay? So, you come to North Church for the first time, and you see the signs, and you're like, oh, it must be that way. Hope that worked for you guys. Um, okay? Now, how many of you, when you come in, you're like, We've been here. We know the routine. We know where we're going. We don't, we don't follow the signs. A lot of times when we know what's up, we just ignore the signs and we do opposite the signs. Okay, so I think you have to, there has to be some type of evidence that the significance of a sign had to indicate that there were possibly some soldiers that were present that probably had never seen Jesus or maybe had seen him so little that they didn't remember him. Now, I'm sure there was talk. I'm sure they had heard about him. But as far as like, it's that guy right there. 
Yeah, I saw him in the temple. He threw over my table. Okay? But, but apart from that, like, there had to be some indication that, okay, we're going to come up and I'm going to kiss him. And then you're going to know. Okay, now, what's interesting about, about the kiss is that really this is a, this is a symbol of, uh, it, it, was a, it was a gesture, really a, a welcoming, a gesture of affection and reverence, typically that a, that a, a rabbi would receive from a disciple. Okay, uh, a rabbi just being simply a teacher and a disciple simply being one of his students. That it was a symbol of, of reverence and respect. Um, a lot of times a symbol of, of acceptance, which is, which is very, very ironic. And we see that depicted in the, in the reading and, and in the film that we just watched. Um, but, but, but think about this. What, what's striking is this. For... For what, three years now? Three years, Judas has been with Jesus, eating food with him, having fun, doing ministry, doing powerful ministry, seeing God do incredible things, healing, bringing people to repentance, incredible things. There had to be this incredible camaraderie that had happened between or among the disciples. And here, in this moment, one of Jesus' very own comes out and uses one of the most recognized basic forms of a greeting, form of respect and acceptance to betray him. And, and there's this verse in Proverbs 27, verse 6. It says, faithful are the wounds of a friend, profuse are the kisses of an enemy. And that, that, that's Judas. Because all the while, what's Judas doing? Like he's plotting. We'll look at this later. But he's plotting. He's looking for an opportunity to betray him. That's actually the language that we'll look at later that, that the passage uses. And he's looking for something convenient. Like anytime you do something for your own personal gain, like you're going to do what? You're going to try to find the easiest way to do it in the way that's going to benefit you the most. Okay, so late at night, not a lot of people around, not a lot of people that know, you know, not a lot of people that are going to see the interaction. They might hear about it later, but it's all hearsay, you know. They're not there to see, oh, Judas did this, and this happened. Like, and so there's this aspect in the midst of this that there's nobody around. There's not going to be much commotion apart from those that are there. Thus, this statement, of they must have assumed that there was going to be some type of resistance. And so in 44, you have where, where, where Judas says, seize him and lead him away under guard. Like, keep close watch on him because you know, you know what Judas was saying? This guy's good. He's really good and really powerful. We better be ready. He knew that. 47. But one of those who stood by drew his sword, struck the power of the servant. Let me start that over. And one of those who stood by him drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Um, just to fill you in, it was that very morning that G- 
Jesus had had a conversation with Peter and said, you're going to deny me. And so I would have to assume that this very thing was in his head. For I don't think it could go away. Follow that? Like even months later, Jesus tells me I'm going to deny him. Like I'm not forgetting that. That's on my radar and I'm like, I'm going to prove you wrong. You ever had that instance where somebody's like, oh, you're going to do this. And you're just like, oh, you want to see? Okay, so, so here in this moment, I think there's this realization that Peter's like, they're going to be- Jesus is going to betray him. And so in the midst, and you saw it in the interaction, in the midst of the seeking to, they, they kiss him and they go to hand him over and they go to seize him. And Peter all of a sudden is like, I'm not going to deny you. In fact, I'm going to fight for you. And so very like, you know, uh, they say he was a pretty horrible swordsman, probably trying to cut off the head. All right, um, almost missed entirely by that much. <laughs> All right. And then Jesus, and we see this in Matthew's account, what does he do? He rebukes him. To the point where Jesus says to him, uh, Peter, didn't you know that at any point I could call to my father and at any point he would send 12 legions of angels right here. 72,000 angels. He's like, put your silly sword away. Like what? What an incredible realization of the, the power of God that at any point, in any time, 72,000 angels. Like what an incredible, what an incredibly powerful God. 48. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. You know what this, this shows us? It exposes a sense of cowardice in the soldiers. Right? Because they had every opportunity so many times before. It wasn't like they were coming in to catch him in the act. Oh, we caught you praying. Guys were sleeping over there. You were praying. It's, we caught you. No. They didn't come to catch him in the act. They, they, they came when? When no one was around. Part of it was the Passover was coming, so they didn't want to create this uproar with so many people that were pres- present in the city. Okay? But they, they were scared. Really, all it was was this, like, and I guarantee you there were some, some of the soldiers were like, this guy's done nothing wrong. So their only stance in why they're doing this is Big dog told us to, and if we don't, we're going to lose our job. They were afraid. They were terrified. There was fear. All the while, this very thing, what does it say? It proved the very thing that God said would take place so that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Well, the 
back to that in a second. Verse 50. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him. They left the linen cloth and ran away naked. <laughs> um, something that's very funny about this is uh, there's no name on this. So it's like, well, I wonder who, like, who's the naked guy? That's what everyone wants to know, right? Um, you know, like, you ever have the times, I've, I've never seen this, but like, like streakers, like in professional sports, like that just like want to get on TV, but they, they never show them. They just say it happened. Okay, everyone wants to know, who is, who is it? Well, there's no name. But what's really funny is that scholars believe that um, it's, it's very likely that this gospel writer, Mark, was, was present, and it was him. And so, not wanting to be known as the one who they try to grab him, and he strips his clothes down and runs naked. He's just like, yeah, and by the way, there was this guy. All the while, it was, it was him. Um, I don't blame him. Um, but what does this prove? Uh, look at this passage in, in Zechariah, there, there, there's a prophet named Zechariah, and he's predicting about this very reality. And here's what he says in 13.7. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who is close to me, declares the Almighty. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered, and I will turn my hand against the little ones. So here's the prediction, is that in the moment of betrayal, moment of beatings, the, the, when the shepherds hit, the sheep are gone. Strike the shepherd and the sheep scatter. What happens? I mean, you saw it. We read it. What do they do? They, they get a hold of them and they're gone. Like everyone wants to point the finger at Judas. But in this moment, are not every one of them betrayers? Like, did not, did not Peter say, I'm not going to deny you. I'll give up my life for you. Well, that'd be a very hard thing for after being rebuked by Jesus to continue to fight in that moment. But he, it's still a sense of denial that's happening. All the while fulfilling the very thing that God said would take place. I want to point out three, three key realities that I see addressed in this passage. Here's the first one. The plan of God will be brought to fruition. The plan of God will be brought to fruition. The scriptures will be fulfilled. Like sometimes I, I think that there's this aspect of like, I wonder if you're going to do this. I wonder if you're going to do that. I wonder what's going to happen on the other side. I wonder what this, I wonder what this, and the Bible tells us, like, like, yes, there's mystery. Sure, absolutely. But, like, God's word always proves true. Because what happened? All along, Jesus had been telling his disciples, here's what's going to take place, here's what's going to take place, here's what's going to take place. And one of the closest people to him, Peter, is one of the very ones who was trying to stop the very thing that Jesus said would happen. Scriptures will be fulfilled. God's word will take place. 
Now, not only is there a, did we still look at the prophecy in, prophecy in Zechariah, but in Psalm 41, verse 9, uh, look at this. It says, even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. This close, I don't know if you've ever been betrayed by a close friend. Uh, it, it must have been either elementary school or middle school. Um, had a friend named Nathan. Now, I don't say I had a friend because this ruined it as much as, like, things moved away and I never saw him again. Um, so we used to collect baseball cards. And uh, to the point where you'd buy, like, the tops, you know, the big old boxes, and I'd sit for hours and, like, sort them by team. Or, like, and I just, you know, I had the big, thick, like, how much is this worth? Oh, 10 cents. Ooh, this one's worth 20. You know, like, you know, you thought you were... You were awesome, but I'd sit in my room for hours, and I'd have stacks like this, and, you know, it was, it was the thing to do, so I'm sorry you missed out. Um, well, anyway, my buddy Nathan comes up to me, and we're out in, a, in my front yard, and he's like, man, you got to check out this card I got. Uh, man, it's, it's, it's a good one. Uh, I, I don't even remember who it was. You know, it's probably somebody like, I don't know, Terry Pendleton or <laughs> something like that. So anyway, he's like telling me about this card, and I'm like, man, how much is this thing worth? And uh, I don't remember the exact amount, but he, you know, he's, he's like, man, 30 bucks. I'm like, 30 bucks? Terry Pendleton? 30 bucks? Like, no way. All right? And so uh, he's like, I'll sell it to you. I'm like, yeah? How much? 15. 15? Like, that's half price? You'll sell me Terry Pendleton for 15 bucks? <laughs> okay? So, <laughs> so I was like, deal. Deal. So it wasn't Terry Pendleton. I'll, I just pulled that one out. But anyway, I don't remember who it was. And I was like, deal. And so, you know, I got that card, and he, he goes home, and uh, you got to know exactly where this is headed. Um, so I get home, and I go to my parents. I'm like, check out this card I got. And so I'm like, I'm going to go. I want to see it for myself. I want to, you know, I want to see the $30 in the book. So I open the book. You try to find the card number, the, the type of card. And 25 cents? So you, so you know what I did? Well, I went flying out of my room. I went to my mom, all right? I told my mom. You know what my mom did? My mom got on the phone. My mom called his mom. His mom went and grabbed him and said, oh, you're going to give that money back. So he comes. I think she walked him down, and, uh, you know, I was pretty upset. You know, we made the exchange, and uh, it was pretty awkward for a while after that because I was like, this is my boy, like, like, you betrayed me. Like, you took me for a fool. <laughs> You're like, it rightly so. <laughs> okay? <laughs> um, and, and so there, there was this aspect of like, man, this was a friend who betrayed me. And that, that's the very place that, that, that Jesus was at in, the, in, in what it says in Psalm 41, verse 9. Even my close friend in whom I trusted ate my bread, and has lifted his heel against me. But what does this show? What's the point? God's word will be fulfilled. God's word will be fulfilled. Why? Why? There's, there's so much in, in, our, in our day and age that, that says, can we trust God's word? Is he good? In the, you know, you look at 
You look at the Haiti situation, you look at all the, the turmoil that's going on in our world, and we want to point the finger at God, so to speak, as opposed to coming to this recognition of living in a broken and fallen world that because of that, there's brokenness and there's sin and there's disaster that happens. Okay, but I want, I want to show you some internal evidence to the, the truthfulness of God. Look at these passages. First one, Psalm 18. Psalm 18, verse 30, says this. This God, His way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in Him. His way is perfect. Okay, so, so yeah, we should try to reconcile that with what's going on in Haiti right now. We should. Most of the time we just throw it out. Well, that can't be true. No, we should try to... There might be some mystery in that. Okay, but it says his way is perfect. He is good and does good. Always. Proverbs 30, verse 5. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Every word. Like, not just some words. Every word. God is... God is truth. He cannot tell a lie. Every word of God proves true. I love this one. Psalm 119, 160. The sum of your word is truth. And every one of your righteous rules endures forever. Think about that. So, so not just like this part here, or not just like this part here, not just like Revelation, or not just Psalms, because it, you know, it's easy to read, but like, the sum of it, all of it. Like, that's what we believe here as a church. In the absolute inerrancy of Scripture. That it's perfect. It's flawless. So when you come to passages that seem to be at odds, and you can't reconcile them, what should we do? Not throw the Bible out and say, this is wrong. We should say, no, there's something flawed in my finite mind. The sum of God's Word Truth. Always. John 17, 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Then I love this one in Hebrews 6. It says this. So when God desires to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of our soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus had gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, what's crazy about that is the reality that it talks about the sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. What is it? Christ. It says, became our high priest, our access to God. Who in fact is interceding on our behalf. So the word of God is true. It will be fulfilled. Always. Second thing. And we would be absolutely foolish not to see this and not to think this. 
betrayal of Judas is a picture of us. The betrayal of Judas is a picture of us. Let me walk us through this. So I know some people that would take very great offense to that, okay? So let's walk through this. Uh, Turn back a page, probably. Uh, We're still in Mark 14, verse 10. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. I want, to give you a, I want to give you a picture, and this is a picture that I had a friend describe this to me as. Uh, I'll think, of, think of a picture of, of premeditated murder. Okay, so what you have is really a sadistic plan of a crime. Okay, take for instance 9-11. Okay, premeditated mass murders, suicides, the whole gamut of stuff, okay? But think about the planning that went into that. Probably years and years and years of you are going to do this and you're going to do this and you're going to kill this person and this and this and we're going to hit this and this plane and just the whole intricacies of planning out premeditated. Here's what we're going to do. To walk out a horrific event in the history of our world, the history of the United States. What did we just read about Judas in 11? It says, he sought an opportunity to betray him. So so what is that saying? Okay, it's saying this, that this very act, this this is the very, on a fundamental level, the very act that brought Jesus from a place of being arrested, taken into custody, tried, and eventually killed. Right? So what does he do? He, he seeks, seeks out an opportunity. He premeditates the murder of Jesus. In the fact that what he did in betraying him and turning him over is the very act. Like, if he doesn't do that, Do they arrest him? And does he die? Apart from the scriptures will be fulfilled? It's it's, it's meditated. Now, before we think, well, way to go, Judas. Turn to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53. We'll start at verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Truly he has bore our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for Judas's transgression? Yes. He was wounded for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. 
and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. So, so what is that saying? Like, it's us. Like, we're, we're the betrayers. Okay, like, for example, um, Judas, what did he do? He turned to his own way. He, he made this decision of, I want to do my own thing. Like, in John chapter 12, it tells us that, that he was like the for all the guys. And he had a money bag where he kept everything. And then from time to time, he would take money for himself. He turned to his, to his own way. Like there's personal gain. Why, why, why does Nathan rip me off from my Pendleton hard? Why? 1475 is why. Per, like, per, like, that's it. Like, what am I going to get out of this? And the only reason why we decide to go our own way is because I think I'm going to gain something. When in reality, like, it's almost hilarious. Like, what the gain is? Like, what is, what is Judas? What, what's he betraying him for? 30 pieces of silver? It's, it's, it's laughable. He was, he was a money-driven thief. And really what sin is, is it's saying, God, I don't trust you. I don't trust that the, the way you have, the, the plan you have, the mission that you have is good. That what you say will be true will be true. And that ultimately it's going to result in your glory and my joy. God, I don't trust that. And so what do we do? We make ourselves God and we begin to walk out Here's what I'm going to do. But what did Isaiah 53 say? Rather than submitting in obedience, we choose our own way. What was it saying? Six. We have turned everyone to his own way. I'm going to do my own thing. Like that's sadistic betrayal. Sadistic betrayal. But... But we have to go to Matthew 26, and this, this absolutely rocked my face off this weekend as I was studying this. Um, I, I did not know what to do with this when I saw it. Matthew 26. This is the account, Matthew's account of the same story. I really want to hit home with this. Matthew 26, 47. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I kiss is the man, seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi, and he kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. And they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. Friend? For real? Like, is it? Is your Bible say that, friend? Are you, he, so, so here in this moment, what what is happening? He's looking, looking Judas in the eye. 
the, the, the very one who, because of what he does, he's going to, be, he's going to eventually die. Okay? He's looking at him in the eye. And, and I think that the implication, and, and kind of as I studied it, I was like, what is this word really getting at? Surely it can't really mean that. But there's this aspect of like, like sorrow. Almost as if, as he calls him friend, like it's this beckoning, like last chance type of thing. Like this, like I'm pursuing you with friendship. And you know what we call that? The gospel. The gospel. Like, the in, in the face of premeditated murder, sadistic betrayal, is a savior who looks into the eye of one of the disciples that he spent the past three years with. And recognizing the weight of that moment, of what was really taking place, he says, friend, me. The weight of that is huge for us tonight. So what does it mean? One more thing I want to point out. The perfect son of God was treated as a criminal. This, this blows me away. The perfect son of God was treated as a criminal. Again, Isaiah 53, verse 12, it says this, Therefore I will divide him a portion from the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death, and he was murdered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. You know what, you know what that phrase numbered with the transgressors means? You know what that means? It means he became a statistic. Not sadistic, but a statistic. He became a statistic. Okay, let me, let me give you an example of, of a statistic. According to the FBI, in 2008, 14 million Arrests were made. 14 million. I, I got a whole list of them by category. Okay? Here's what I'm getting at is that Jesus became a statistic. He became one of these. Like, like let's give, me some, give you some examples. Uh, I don't know which one of these they'd argue maybe he'd fall in. Uh, like, 109,000 people were arrested for runaways. I don't know what that means. I don't know if that, you know, maybe they're like, and not that this is Jesus' list or, you know, in that day or anything, but like, you know, when you were 12, your family was leaving and you ran away to the temple, you know, we're finally coming to get you for that. I, I, I don't know, like 133,000 people, curfew and loitering laws. Maybe that's one. Did he loiter? Like, I'm sure they didn't want him around the temple some of the times. Suspicion, 1,650 people. Um, disorderly conduct, 600. Six for disorderly conduct. I'm sure they could have argued disorderly conduct. Um, driving under the influence. 
I don't know if that one would have applied. Um, 1.4 million uh, liquor laws, $625,000. There might be some in our day that might go back and get Jesus for that now, um, but <laughs> probably not then. Um, offenses against family and children, 118,000 arrests. What does it say? It says he was numbered with the transgressors. He became a statistic. They write his name. Here's another one. Jesus, lock him up. Do you understand in that moment how insignificant he becomes? How nothing he becomes? He just becomes one of, in our illustration, 14 million people. Just one. Comes a nobody. But what's incredible about this whole story is this. Is that he responded to our rejection and betrayal with pursuing friendship. Pursuing friendship. And the incredible thing is, is that in this moment, he's still doing that. Still. So, I don't know what your betrayal looks like. I can tell you this, it's bad. It's, it's all bad. If you don't think it's bad, the problem with that thinking is the Bible. So, I just want to just want to say tonight as we begin to move back into worshiping, continuing worshiping, that the offer tonight is the same: the pursuing friendship of God. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Let me pray. God, you are good. Always. You are good and you do good. And, and God, as I stand here, the weight of my own depravity, the weight of my own wickedness, God, and I see you looking in my eyes and I see you calling me friend. God, what an incredible God you are. God, would you lead us to that? Would you grip our hearts with that? God, might we come to embrace the friendship that you offer. Through your dad. In Christ's name, amen.